Hello. So, Graham, it's uh, another week, and um, we've tantalised our listeners with the prospect of talking about Stereo Lab playing live in Leeds, and you decided quite rightly that there wasn't time last week to discuss that, but we could look at it in more detail this week. And oh, my confusion, are they a British band? Are they a British band with a French singer, or are they a French band anyway? I've still got a quick interruption. Quick interruption. Oh, sorry, you are going to interrupt. Yeah, you know how I like mocking Ed Sheeran, but yes. not as much as I like mocking Andre Ruhr. And no. Andre Ruhr got some exciting news about me. You know, he's the world's one of the world's successful violinists and musicians, and he tours the world with his Johann Streich Orchestra, and he 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 plays to five hundred thousand live each people live each year. Five hundred thousand people see him live each year. The guy's absolutely phenomenal, but he's also chintzy as hell. He he makes his concerts a bit like a Viennese. Chocolate cake, is he, you know, is he real the Liberace of today, Graham? Possibly, yeah, but he's, he's also, I find him simultaneously very, he's obviously talented, but I find him so irritating because he's so chintzy, so he makes James Last and Richard Clayderman look like Sex Pistols. He's that sort of like <laughs> obvious and sentimental and with his poodle-like haircut and his perpetual smile. But anyway, the good news is if you're an Andy Rua fan, yeah. There's a new live cinema broadcast of a, of a couple of concerts he's doing early in January. And this is classic. Andre Ruhr in Dublin. He's finally managed to get the Irish theme going because he, he does themes for every possible thing and place in the world. And he's finally alighted on Dublin and Ireland. And so the poster for the concerts he's doing, which are going to be broadcast across British cinemas, has got a dirty big shamrock <laughs> in uh, it. And if there's one thing that Andre Ruhr if there's one thing that Andre Ruhr certainly isn't, it's Irish, because he's not a man for the crack, is he? Let's face it. He is not a man for the crack. But on the other hand, could you imagine a combination of Andrew Ruhr uh, and um, Michael Flatley together? How about that? Oh, I, I would probably be sick on the spot. That just sounds hideous. <laughs> I hate New Year's concerts because it means you know it's a new year, and they all somehow think go you know go to Austria and play hideous music in a happy way. And you think nah, nonsense. Loathsome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like people dancing on the edge of a cliff. Yeah, entirely that. Can't they see willingly, the, willingly that push over that, that cliff. Tarnished world. <laughs> Can't they see that they're that everybody's as rich and wealthy and happy as they are? <laughs> I think that I mean, you've hit on it as well. It's that revolting sense of wealth about those concerts. Mm. It's just anyway. like bling. It's bling made into music. Dublin the value. Well, I'm sure the Irish crack will... Um, well, thrill, thrill, Rio to new heights of ghastliness. So, Graham, yeah, but it'll be thank popular. you for that interruption and bringing up the... I mean, I really could do without Rio at the start of it. But anyway, we were discussing briefly their stereo lab and my slight confusion. Are they an English band with a French singer or are they actually a French band? They were formed in London in 1990 with mm. Tim Gain, who's definitely English. But the, the main singer is Letitia Sadia, who's definitely yeah. French. So they're mm. French... English, basically. Mm. And they, they lasted a new album in 2010, but they've been touring again. I, th- I think it got, de- it got delayed during the, uh, the lockdown, but yeah. they were back on tour again. And I last saw them in 1999 inside a tent at Leeds Festival. Yeah. 
And, so and where did you see the list Tom Graham? Well, I was doing Chan Magazine then, and the interesting thing mm. then was that they were quite mysterious because the music they were making wasn't being done by anybody else no. on the planet. And they looked a bit, you know, slightly enigmatic and mysterious. And they were using a theremin live on stage, so it was all very exotic, and it seemed like the future. <laughs> so then I thought, oh, they're on tour again. Let's go and see what they're like now. <laughs> so I went to a stylist at Leeds University to catch them nearly 25 Which years is... later. Not exactly a to-the-future type venue, is it? It's um, basically a, a university. Is it a refectory or something, is it? Yeah, it's, it's part of the refectory, but it's, it's not the main part of the, the university where the, the Who required, recorded live at Leeds. No. It's a smaller, and it's got two levels, including a balcony. And the great thing about the balcony is if you're short, and I'm not saying I'm short, by the way, but if you are short, you can but, still see the stage. Whereas, whereas mm. downstairs, amongst the crowd, you're always surrounded by people who are tall, so you, can, so you can't see. You arrive, so arrive at the last minute. And... <laughs> so anyway, you're proposing the idea that they're going back to the future again. So what was futuristic last uh, this time? Last time you mentioned the theremin. Not, not again, something I think is particularly um, a radical instrument, but um, what, what this year was uh, new to suggest they're futuristic after a 10-year well, gap? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about that is that at the time there were... Uh, sort of like a unique blend of many different attributes which were all a bit obscure at that point before they became trendier and more fashionable mm. because they were into Brazilian MOR music from the 60s, they were into electronica which was still a bit out there, they were into like the Velvet Underground and late 1960s Beach Boys and they were into minimalism and, and they, they, they were sort of dream pop before dream pop mm. expression was coined and they like, they like to use old fashioned 70s, 70s analogue synthesizers yeah, and so they were, they were retro plus futuristic because they didn't do big choruses. In fact, there was no emotional climaxes in any of the songs. They were sort of like they got in a groove and stayed in the groove, sort of like a laid-back French version of kraut rock. So a sort of pleasanter, more baroque version of kraut rock, hmm. but occasionally a little bit of noise, occasionally a little bit of feedback, and the lyrics were always a bit sort of like semi-cultural semi-political and quite obtuse, sort of like yes. early scritty plitty lyrics when they were really interesting before they had pop hits. So they were sort of like doing things that no one else was doing at the time while still looking backwards. And when I saw them live again at Stylist in October, they didn't look mysterious anymore and they no. didn't look enigmatic. And their no. music at first was so familiar, not because Sterolab were familiar to me, even though they are, but because so many bands that are happening now, or that happened 10 years ago, are using bits of the Sterilab template, not the whole Sterilab template, because there's so much in it anyway, but little bits. So all the stuff they did that seemed a bit weird back in the 1990s is all being sucked up almost into the mainstream. So at first I was a bit underwhelmed. I thought, ooh, they're a bit more ordinary and mumsy looking than mm. I remember them. A bit disappointed. But after a while, you start to realise that their beauty and their greatness is so broad and subtle mm. that no one still to this day can do what Sterlab does. And they basically were playing to please themselves. They, they're not like crowd pleasers. They play no. music that they love playing together and they love the act of playing together. And so by the end, you thought, well, people still haven't caught with them. They're still don't sound like now. Mm. They've still taken things further than anybody else has taken them in all those different genres they bring together. 
Yeah. And so I thought, yeah, there's still the future. They haven't dated at all. Within this, was there, was there any new compositions within the set at all, Ryan? No, they haven't done a new album from, since 2010. And mm. to be frank, they've, done, they've recorded so many albums when they were together. They, they were prodigious, weren't they? I've, mm. only, I've, only got, I've only got four albums. So mm. they could have, I didn't recognise half the set list, at least. No. It wasn't a great set list. Again, no. they were doing it. It was almost like they were doing it to re to reconnect with their own stereolabness. They were trying yes. to go back to their artistic roots of being just a band who did interesting music. They weren't there like, you know, like greatest hits tour. This no. was them being proper stereolab, which again was was to their credit. Mm, mm. So maybe this is a, a start a spark for a new new burst of creativity from them. Maybe this is that I mean that's happened before with bands where they've got together for to uh, remember the old days to get the band back together again and then lo and behold have gone out and made a, a new album as Shed 7 for example have, have done exactly that having regrouped several times they finally got around to making a new album so who knows we await with interest now Graham yeah I think they should do I think I think it'd be good if they did it yeah we shall we shall see what happens with that now um, just a little interruption if you may um, because you mentioned about a top actress's message of hope for the future of the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Um, which actress, or actress, we're now invited to say, um, well, are we referring to? It's going to be, yeah. It's going to be Tilda Swinton because she's a patron yes. of the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Has been for a long time. I mean, she's also close friends with Mark Cousins, yes. the former film festival director, whose latest film about the rise of fascism in 1920s Italy was a big hit at Cannes. Mm. So she, she was always going to support it and She's such an amazing actress. She's had such a prolific career for such a long time, mainly a bit left field in her roles, but then she'll turn up suddenly in a big Marvel movie. So she's totally unpredictable and highly respected by everybody because she's not only a great actress, she's got amazing taste. She does interesting projects the whole yeah. time. So I think this year she's had two, she had two films, uh, 3,000 Years of Longing and Eternal mm. Daughter. Mm. And next year she's going to be in Wes Anderson's new film called Asteroid City. So... She's a heavyweight player, but she's saying that you know, obviously, the terrible thing that National Film Festival did not come back after it was set up in 1947. Mm. But she says she's totally convinced that the spirit behind the festival is so strong that it will survive. Although she did think it would come back in a new incarnation, and I didn't really know what the new incarnation meant, no. but she was no. quite confident it would survive, which is good news. I mean. There is a, a possibility, I suppose, by which Filmhouse does not return, um, but Film Festival does. Well, yeah, that I think is, that's what's going to happen. That is the more likely option, it would seem to me now. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it doesn't take much for owners of, of buildings to decide, right, we're moving on, we're going to do something else. You know, the, it, that ruthlessness we... we know about within the arts world so often that would happen, sadly. Um, but that's the way it goes. Now, Graham, um, I mentioned just something actually from, from York that I think the reason I want to talk about this, and this is, um, I don't have you been to see Van Gogh, the immersive experience? Have you been to this? Well, I went to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam in October. Yeah. Then yeah. we saw millions of Van Gogh, so I feel Van mm. Goghed out. Okay, well, maybe you won't want to Van Gogh to it, but it's been a huge success story. I mean, it's not just, it's been rolled out elsewhere in this country, including in, in, in Leicester and London. It's been rolled out in New York. But 
York was the first place that this um, immersive exhibition was 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 shown in in Britain and started in 2019. It was expected to be only there for six months, and it's ended up still being there. And this year alone, it has been extended three times now till March 2023. And what I think is interesting about this is that it is potentially showing a vision of how more exhibitions might be in the future. In that the way the way it works is it's a, it's a to say two parts even sort of three part on one level possession. But when you go in, you're in the the nave of, of York St Mary's, so a former church in Castlegate, and within yeah. that, it is 360 degrees, so four walls, and on all those walls, will be animated and projected. Is this a real experience, or are you wearing those goggles? Ah, so part two, or even part three does involve goggles for this part instead you sit basically you're invited to sit down in a deck chair now obviously a deck chair only faces one way but you just have to crick your neck really um and so in that in that first space you'll see as many as 200 paintings by van gogh and it's also telling the story behind them some of it is in is a voiceover by an actor uh, using the words of Van Van Gogh, Van Gogh, and Van Gogh, mm. however you wish to pronounce yeah. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it it is an absolute assault on the senses in every way, and I think that's what's so thrilling about it. But it's also informative as well, so visually stunning, but also the the, the oral side of it works really strongly, and it's beautiful to see church walls used in that way, and it is it is all encompassing. It it is absolutely immersive. So that experience in that first part of it lasts 35 minutes, but you can you can dip in and out. So you could you could go to another part of the exhibition and then come back again if you don't want to overload the senses. So you've then got an opportunity to see Van Gogh um, vases, which again are done in a in the projected animated style. Then you could, if you so wish, you could actually um, there's a, a, an opportunity to paint in the style of Van Gogh. So it's, it's essentially you're, you know, you're, you're painting in his style and you'll see the results of that being projected uh, on the wall. I, I, take, I take it that requires very little skill. They've arranged it so that any, any old idiot could do a Van Gogh. Yeah, Van I Gogh. think, I think it's ready, steady Van Gogh on that one. So, yeah, yeah, um, okay. but the last part, which is a, an extra expense, it is a three pounds extra expense. Hmm. But I think that, that this is the part that's particularly worth it because this is the virtual yeah, reality. Yeah. Experience. You your ear doesn't come off, does it? You're, 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 you don't lose an ear. <laughs> Actually, surprise, surprise, Graham. The one thing they don't show is mm. Van Gogh. They don't recreate an, in animation Van Gogh chopping chopping his ear off. We don't. We don't. Mm. Surprisingly, it's not considered in good taste, Graham. I wonder why. <laughs> so, anyway, in that last part, so there's no horror movie to it at all. But in the last part, it's virtual reality. So that, that's headset time. And it's recreating when he was living in Arles in France. He was yeah. incredibly prolific in those last years, died, as we know, at the age of 37, uh, taking his own life. But it, prodigious in those last years. And what it's creating... Well, some of his best paintings were just at the end. So yeah, a lot of the yeah. classics that pays 22 million for, etc., were done in his last in year. Include, including the chair that was in the room that he had in Arles. So, you know, which... which um, so they re so they recreate that room, so you, it's as if you're in that room, and then you walk out with the the aid of the virtual reality into the into the streets and scenes 
of Arles. And it recreates, therefore, before your very eyes, it's recreating paintings as he would have been creating them and with the sounds of, of, of where he was. And right. why I say this is a potentially kind of future exhibition experience yeah. that you can extend, you could extend beyond Van Gogh, is that it, it absolutely fills you with, with playful imagery. It's also informative, so it's, it, it, it plays on all levels and it absolutely engages you. There are times that you might go around in an exhibition and not feel particularly involved, not feel particularly moved, maybe not connect with it. And it's that thing that you are just looking at a static painting. That's fine. Yeah, but it's not, you're not actually seeing the real painting. And as you know, a digital representation of a painting in no way captures exactly what the painting is like. So there, so there, there, okay, there, there's Graham the naysayer. And I understand that because one of the things that's interesting, if you go to, uh, for example, go to the Louvre and you see how tiny the, the Mona Lisa Mona is. Lisa. Yeah, absolutely yeah. tiny. And you can only, you know, you can't really get close up for more than a few seconds because everyone else is trying mm -hmm. to do the same. So I accept your point on that level, but I think, I, I, I don't think, it would be wrong to suggest that this technique of the digital in any way cheapens it. I don't think it does. I think it opens up new opportunities within the art to look at it and to appreciate it. So I think it's got many merits to it. Yeah, it does, it does sound extremely entertaining. And if you know nothing about Van Gogh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, you would actually learn a lot by going there. And I'm sure I'd enjoy it as well, despite my attempt to be negative about it. But I still think I'd swap that, swap all that, just to see one of his great paintings in the. Collection. Or to do what you did to actually go to you know, see a, a huge collection. I take that on board, Graham. I just think what's interesting is that you potentially have more than one route to doing that now, to bringing art alive. Well, it sounds to me a bit like that classic Woody Allen line from his comedies in the seventies, when you could actually mention his name without getting <laughs> trouble. And, and yes. At one point, he says in one of those big films from the seventies. Sex without love is an empty experience, but as empty experiences go, it's one of the best. I think that Van Gogh is um, a higher level than that onanistic uh, joke. But anyway, thank you for that, Graham. <laughs> well, well <laughs> worth having. Now, <clears throat> I feel, let's go, if we may, with an interruption. Uh, I'm going to well, choose yeah. between one or the other, and then we'll do the big topic of your day. The link well, between let's forget Monkeys the big and Frank let's, Sinatra, because I want to know what the link is. Yeah, well, so the tell me the link. Everybody said that the car album. Well, the car album... You know, everybody says it sounds like Richard Hawley or Scott Walker. And then when Do you know who it sounds like, Graham? Do you know who it sounds like? It doesn't sound like Scott Walker or Richard sounds, Hawley. I'll tell you who it sounds yeah, like. Good. The singer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, is who is now he sings like. He is sounding like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, really? Mr Johnson. <laughs> I never thought of that. Mm. I think he's better than that, but I know what you mean. Uh, Holly Johnson's a good singer, by the way. The Power of Love, Holly, Holly Johnson. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Is it a Christmas song or not? That's the question. Is it a Christmas song? It was a, it was a Christmas number one-ish. It was a number yeah. one. But the, month, the video it? shows it to be a bit of a bit of a piss take, really. It's not it's yeah. so over the top and it's Christmas. But anyway, that the Arctic Monkeys, like I, I heard that the album Car, which is a great album, favourite album mm. of the year. And I thought this sounds more like Frank Sinatra's Watertown album from nineteen seventy when he briefly dipped his toe in a sort of Jimmy Webb modern pop style under the yeah. guidance of a member of the of the four seasons that band that Frankie Valley sang was called Bob Gaudio. And Watertown oh, yes. was like a a little beautiful song cycle. Very sparse instrumentation, mm. telling the story of a, of a man who loses his love in a small suburban American town, and it's very mm. nice and it's very clipped and very understated and very subtle and very classy. And I thought this sounds pretty, you know, a bit like the Carbatic Monkeys. And I thought perhaps I was going out of the limb, but then I read an interview that 
Alex Turner did recently with the LA Times. Mm. And who does Alex Turner name drop but Frank Sinatra? But he, he doesn't mention Watertown. He, he says that the Frank Sinatra album I'm listening to right now is Live at the Sands, which came out in 1966. Mu- and, much it's, earlier, and it's Sinatra, yeah. Sinatra in Vegas. And he's got the Count Basie Orchestra behind him, conducted mm. by a very young Quincy Jones. So it's a great album, Live at the Sands, and it's not quite Watertown, but I, I, I was vaguely on the money when it came to that, I think. How much, Graham, and this is me taking longer than we should on this topic, but I'm just wondering if, with Alex Turner, it's because he is such a brilliant lyricist that that is actually what's marking, more than the arrangements, is marking out Alex Turner's ability. Well, the song's built around the lyrics almost more than the melody. He mm. spends so much time hand carving each line mm. that the music has to fit the lyrics, otherwise it doesn't work at all. Which is quite an unusual approach for for a pop songwriter. Usually, the the melody or the riff in the chorus, you know, defines the song, and then the lyrics fit around that. But he he's almost the opposite way. You're right. Mm. Mm. I, I've played it a lot since uh, since your recommendation, and um, what do you think? I, I'm loving it. Much more than the last album, I, I'm I'm really loving, it. and it it is partly the arrangements. I think I, I think this is a mature a mature band, a mature sound, absolutely at ease with itself as well. And I think that's lovely as well that a band doesn't feel under pressure in any way to be commercial. It is being mm. true. It is being true to making music, which I think is what you want a band to be able to do at that stage, not to be, come on, where's the hits? Come on, where's the hits? It's not that kind of album. The last, album exactly. very it's, the, last album, the last album sounds very worked on, and yes. this sounds effortlessly classy. It sounds I, sophisticated yes. without too much effort. That's a good. It is sophisticated, Graham. That's a you know, yeah. which you think you know Sheffield roots sophistication. If you could have predicted that from Arctic Monkeys at the start, no way. But that's what's grown. Well, yeah. That's what's grown. Well, yeah, they've, they've done a David Bowie, haven't they? They've, they've sort of changed as they've gone along and they've yeah. experimented and gone out on a limb. So mm. uh, very impressive. This is their this is their sound and vision and fashion era. Absolutely, yeah. So, Graham, there's there's that interruption. Now, um, the last major topic says he tapping his phone to discover it is Graham. Uh, we're going to be suggesting a link between two novels, Jack Kerouac's The Dharma by the 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 Dharma the Dharma Bums from 1959, and rather more recently, Thomas Pynchon's Vineland. And uh, you say that what is the thread between the two novels, and then more crucially, what breaks that thread? Well, basically, they're 31 years apart, and they're not usually linked together. No. But if you read both books, The Dharma Bombs by Kerouac and Vineland by Thomas Pynchon, the, the actual style, before we get to the content, which is links as well, the style's mm. very similar. There's an awful mm. lot of rambling in both books, an awful lot of lengthy descriptions, an awful lot of paragraphless writing which goes on for sometimes almost a whole page and that's they both do that but the point of that isn't because they're rambling it's partly that they build up the story through details little details like dickens used to do it's partly that they also all the rambling and the free-flowing tide of words Mm. leads occasionally when you least expect it and they both do this kerak and pynchon to sudden moments of revelation, because what they're really trying to achieve in their books, without telling you the answer, they're trying to make you realise something profound, like it was a natural occurrence, and they both do that, so that's quite similar. But on top of that, what makes them interesting is that 
they're both quite hard boiled writers. There's a, there's a little bit of Raymond Chandler about both the writing. Mm. You know, that sort of like cynical, you know, they, they both understand the world isn't as idealistic as they both like to be. They, they both recognize what the real world's really like, just like Raymond Chandler did with his, his great detective novels. Yeah. And on top of that, they, they both share another attribute which goes against what you think they're they're doing in the rest of the, the writing. They both have that sort of F. Scott Fitzgerald sense of willful, wist, wistful nostalgia about America not being as good as it used to be or America, the American dream not being what it was before. And they both share that as well. So even though they're not usually linked together, those things are pretty damn similar. And on top of that, the content's also the same because mm. the content really is about the place of people in America who don't agree with the American obsession with money and the American obsession with power and winning and consumerism. And both books address that specifically on several occasions. And both books represent people who don't go along with that, who want a different world. Mm. And that they're both basically writing the same book. But there is a difference because there's a 31-year gap. And when Kerak wrote The Dharma Bumps, 1959, the 60s hadn't happened yet. Nope. That idealistic decade of change and revolution reform hadn't happened. So there's a sense in Kerak that the world he wanted to see happen might actually happen at some point. And with Vineland coming out in 1990, even though it's set in the early 80s during mm. the Reagan era, Thomas Pynchon hasn't got that sense of hope because the 60s, although it achieved quite a lot, ultimately failed politically and was replaced by hard right-wing politics, which yeah. which is sort of endured to this day. That's so exactly. in, in, in Vineland and Pynchon's book, that whole optimism for the future is totally gone. It's much more, there's a, there's a bigger sense of sadness about mm. Pynchon than, than Kerak because he hasn't quite got the hope because he, he knows that it's not going to happen. Do they, Graham, I mean, is that the American dream, do you think it's fair to say it's often been misappropriated? That actually what a novelist might want from the American dream, and that could be any number of American novelists, the American dream is never that. It's rather like the promise of the second coming. It might never well, what happen. Era was, well, yeah, but exactly. Which era of American history was the American dream operating? Was it, you know, when they first had the original war, war of independence against mm. Britain, when they only had, like, the eastern seaboard states? Really? Is, is it when the Wild West started to come into being, when they, they started spreading across the continent? Is it the 1910s and 20s when its industrial boom mm. made it the biggest economic nation in the world? Is it when it became a world superpower after the Second World War, when you had the consumer boom in the 1950s? Mm. At what point did the American dream actually work? And if you look at all those eras, it never really worked at any point. It was it was only at best partially true and partly real to the, the, the average person. So mm. the American dream is, is well named because it's a dream. <laughs> it's, you know, it never really existed. But it's interesting, is it, the American dream is what drew the Irish across, for example, the Irish diaspora to uh, to New York, the Italians likewise. They were drawn to this idea of an American dream. But it's a myth, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think what it, probably a difference is that it's not it's not that America was a failure, that everybody went to America failed, they didn't. So it's almost like what's changed is that the, the American dream involved hope. Yes. It didn't guarantee success, but there was definitely a hope that you would have a better mm. life and you would mm. succeed. I think what's changed the last 30 or 40 years, partly because of the economy and partly because of politics, is that, that sense of hope that you can succeed 
is sort of gone. And that's yeah. so the American dream's been dying as a result of that. Mm. It's not the American dream ever operated fully, but it, it doesn't seem to operate at all now. <laughs> No, it's all it's all down to money now, more and more. Is it? I mean, it's interesting. You know, the idea of migration and wanting to travel, and that thought of is there a British dream? Is that why people still want to come to this country? Is it? How, but again, what dream are they being sold? Why is it that well, people American, want to come when we don't? We well, most of us don't like our own country at all anymore. So why do people still think of it as some kind of dream to come here? The British dream is that we are very clever, very intelligent, very successful very civilised, very polite, wouldn't hurt a fly. The, the British dream is a bit different. It's more about manners. <laughs> and our manners are supposed to be impeccable. Of course, in the real world, that isn't the case and never was the case. And if you look at the you know, 19th century Britain and mm-hmm. see how you know workers were treated and children were treated and how half the world was treated when, when they had That's the point, how half you the know, world you know, was treated. You know, yeah. I, you know, again, like the American dream, the British dream was only ever partly true. Exactly. Uh, and yet people seem to still feel they, there's a form of dream that they believe in, be it the cliched images that are presented in, in, in films in particular, uh, of a form of Britishness. And yet, and yet, we've, rejected, and yet yeah. we've rejected it. We, we ourselves have re- largely rejected that. And yet yeah, we've become more insular. British dream. The, 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 no, but there's an alternative British dream. If you look at Paddington, for example, that, that lofty artistic film, <laughs> that's, that's really about... It's really about Britain being multicultural and open, intolerant, and coffee culture and cafe culture and pavement culture and halloumi paste and you know and that's that's the alternative modern version of the British dream and the Richard Kurtz films had a bit of the same thing. Yeah, his comedies were hugely successful in the early noughties. That's the Blair Brown dream. So there is an alternative British dream, which uh, Danny Danny Boyle, for example, at the yeah. British Olympics. London in 2012. Yeah. He represented a different version of Britain, but again, that again that that self's only partly true because Britain's always very between doing the right thing and, and just being based on power and mm. greed and you know all all the things that lots of other countries are based on. <laughs> but I think it's why art thrives in this country because the underbelly of it all is that we know there's that version that you've described that something like Danny Boyle, the fact that he was able to do that to the world to put across a really strongly political statement about Britain against everything that was being put forward at the time about Britain. He presented an entirely different worldview on that, which yeah. I think tapped into an awful lot more of what British people actually think is the, is the truth about this country. And the fact that that could happen says a lot about this country, that we that our, that our arts can present that alternative view to, to the world. Yeah, well, culture is very important, Britain, because Britain's a very old country, Mm. So it's very rule-based. There's, there's rules for everything, sometimes written, yeah. sometimes not. So the only way you can actually escape that system, because you can't beat it, there's just too no. many rules, yeah. is, is through culture. Cultures, uh, In culture, you create a different version of the world, a world that you'd like to live in and like to see happen. And that's mm. why culture is so important in Britain, because it's, it's the only true way of, of changing things. Absolutely. And yet, obviously, radical change happens, development happens, as we've said many times before, with science as well, which is when I go back to my point about the Van Gogh immersive experience, where science can play its part in the arts. Interestingly, you thought it maybe made it a little synthetic, but overall, I still think that's the mm. perfect balance. A bond with science, bringing new technology into the arts, but the arts using new technology in thrilling, inventive and exciting ways. 
Yeah, I've never been interested in technology. I prefer content over technique. <laughs> the is content is the result of the is the result of the technology. Yeah, that's a good argument. Possibly. I mean, I'll, argument. I'll, Graham, I'll just say I'll just say one word to you. Well, I say three words. <laughs> dare right. four words. Dare by Human League. Yeah, yeah, you got me there. I'm not going to argue. Yeah, I, I realised I've created a a pit of disaster for my argument there that I'm falling into. <laughs> a pit of so I'm going to I'm going to have to like surrender. Like you, you've got me on this one. I, ha I have actually stumbled yes. and fallen. Now I wonder whether we, before we get cut off again uh, with Anthony's brilliant editing. The final one, the link between bootleg Beatles and Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah. Well, I talked to Steve White, the Paul McCartney in the bootleg Beatles, and I've, I've talked to three John Lennons before, but never a Paul McCartney. And he told me, amongst many interesting things, about how in 1996, David Gilmore, for his 50th birthday, hired the bootleg Beatles, and I think it might have been the Counterfeit Stones, to play for his mm. birthday party. Mm. And he played, he was the headliner. So, and the reason he did that is because he always wanted Pink Floyd to headline over the Beatles and the Stones. Brilliant. <laughs> Which is a really interesting thought that, that Gilmore is so competitive. Who would have thought it? <laughs> That's magnificent. So, because uh, the bootleg Beatles lineup changes rather more than it used to. It was long running for a long time, um, but it's got it's 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 going through. I think so. You see, see, you see, uh, you've done three three John Lennons now. You see that confirms it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, done all three John Lennons, yeah, but only one Paul McCartney. But yeah, there's none of the original members. I mean, it was first formed in 1980. There's none of the original members of Bootleg Beatles left that. No, which is fair enough. Because they keep on the... Yeah, they keep on regenerating. They couldn't, they couldn't, like they couldn't, they couldn't really uh, pull off the look any longer, could they? Well, no, because they have to cover from the early mop tops to the beards and the exactly. long hair. So you can't do early exactly. mop tops if you look about 70, obviously. No. I mean, no. even Paul McCartney doesn't try that one. Absolutely. I, I'm just going to um, trumpet my, myself here because I was reading Far, Far Out magazine's <laughs> top 50 albums of the year. Oh, yeah. What did you think they chose as number one? Oh, good grief. Uh, Yard Act. Correct. They did choose Yard Act. And wait a minute. And, and, and what did you choose as your number one? I chose Yard Act. No, I chose Yard say. Act. That means, that means this is for the third time this podcast you're right. This is just terrible. <laughs> I, may, I may have to give up. <laughs> Splendid. Well, we'll say goodnight, Graham. You've been listening to the podcast Two Big Egos in a Small Car. Your hosts were Graham Chalmers and Charles Hutchinson. This was a Baltic sub-production.